The 2020 Feast of Tabernacles is shaping up to being a feast like no other. For as long as many of us have been in the church, the drill for going to the feast has pretty much been the same for those of us in the U.S. We find out where the feast sites are, we decide where we would like to go, and in most cases, we just simply go. Yes, there have been a few disruptions over the years, such as a few years ago when a hurricane changed many people's plans at the last minute, but overall, for decades, we have had a good run of open feasts. This year is different. I believe we all intuitively understood as soon as the coronavirus became a pandemic in March that it had the potential, at least, to impact this year's feast. But as the virus spread and governments implemented restrictions throughout March and April, the church had to move forward and make plans for the feast while attempting to project forward to October based on present information they had at the time, which was always changing. It's kind of like knitting a sweater on horseback. Those who have organized multi-site international nine-day conventions for over 10,000 would appreciate how challenging this is, which is most, most of us have never done that. But as plans were formulated, Mr. Weston wrote in the May 11th member letter, quote, we know we will be keeping the feast. That is certain. But it is evident that none of us can predict what COVID-19 conditions will be like by feast time. There are many unknowns and we must plan accordingly. So, decisions were made on how to have the feast this year. And as Mr. Weston wrote, these decisions were made with this important objective in mind. Quote, we want to keep our members as safe as possible under the circumstances. So, Based on this objective for safety, <clears throat> the following baseline was devised. Target each feast site to be around 200 attendees or less, and minimize travel by having brethren attend their assigned site. Now, that's different from the way we've kept the feast in the past. And in a way, we should not be surprised that we may have non-standard feasts as more prophetic events occur the closer we get to the end of the age. Some have wondered for years about having to someday modify how we keep the feast as normal life became disrupted as we got closer to the end of the age. And we've speculated, at least some of us have speculated, what it might look like to keep the feast under those conditions, such as would we need to have smaller sites in more places? And would we have to meet locally to minimize travel? Well, here we are. We hope this is a one-year anomaly, but we have no idea what necessary adjustments may have to be made for future feast sites. But for 2020, we've all known since mid-May the plan was smaller sites. And since transfers are restricted this year, we've all had a chance to get used to the idea that this was going to be a different feast for many. Then, in late June... Most of the 2020 U.S. feast sites were announced, and many found out their assigned site for this year, and some were disappointed. Now, I've been keeping the feast for 45 years now, so I know how important the location of the feast is to many. 
It could be the most important single factor for most people for a whole host of legitimate reasons, such as health or family considerations or distance and especially finances. Then there are those with unconverted mates who don't attend services but use the trip for vacation and family time, and all those can be legitimate reasons to transfer. Of course, there are also personal preferences. Here in the U.S., many northerners like to go south for the last bit of warm weather before a long, cold winter. And I know southerners who prefer to go north because they've been baking all summer and they want to go somewhere cooler for the feast. But because of the restrictions and size location, this feast is like no other. But that isn't necessarily a bad thing. And I believe it could help us to reset our view of what the feast could be like. So today I'd like to take a step back and review God's commands for the Feast of Tabernacles and consider the following aspects for feast keeping such as why do we even keep the feast? And how are we to rejoice at the feast? Which gets to the heart of God's intent for the feast. And so I think it's important to spend some time talking about that. And also, how does this year's feast in particular, this one coming up, provide a special opportunity that we've not had in many years? And some of us have never had. I believe we can look at this year's feast in one of two ways. First, we can be irritated that we don't get to go where we want to go. And secondly, we can embrace this feast as truly unique and therefore special. And I believe a positive approach to this particular feast can make it a feast like no other, which is the title of this sermon, a feast like no other. So let's first review God's commands for the feast and why we even keep it by first going to Leviticus 23, starting in verse 33. So if you'll go to Leviticus 23, you know this is the chapter that lists all of God's holy days. We're going to focus in on the instructions for the Feast of Tabernacles by going to Leviticus 23, beginning in verse 33. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, The fifteenth day of this seventh month shall be the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days to the Lord. On the first day there shall be a holy convocation. You shall do no customary work on it. And for seven days you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall have a holy convocation, and you shall offer an offering made by fire to the Lord. It is a sacred assembly And you shall do no customary work. So right here we see one of the major purposes for the feast. And that is in this phrase, it is a sacred assembly. Really, the chief reason we keep the feast is because God commands us to. It's his feast. And when we look at that reason alone, this strips away all the other things we associate with the feast and brings it down to the essential reason. As we read in the first part of verse 37, these are the feasts of the Lord, which you shall proclaim to be holy convocations. And so we convoke on these days for worship and instruction. And that is all important. 
In other words, we can debate just about everything else about how to keep the feast, but the bottom line is we are commanded to keep it by God because it is the feast of the Lord. This is important that we start here because many of the controversies about the feast have nothing to do with this most essential point. Many aspects that we associate with feast keeping are modern innovations. We've added that are built on principles found in Scripture, but we've simply added these innovations. And those innovations aren't necessarily wrong, but none are as important as this command, that we keep the feast. So, are we going to follow this command and keep the feast this year? Well, as Mr. Weston wrote, we know we will be keeping the feast. This is certain. And so we will. What else does God command about keeping the Feast of Tabernacles? Let's go on and read in verse 39. Here in Leviticus 23, in verse 39, it says, Also on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you have gathered in the fruit of the land, you shall keep the Feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day there shall be a Sabbath rest, and on the eighth day a Sabbath rest, which we know is actually a separate holy day. And you shall take, verse 40, for yourselves on the first day the fruit of beautiful trees, branches of palm trees, and boughs of leafy trees, and willows of the brook. And so we are to, as they did here, gather these branches to build a temporary dwelling. And we understand that we don't literally build a booth as they did here, but we follow the principle by renting temporary places in which to live for eight days. As it goes on to say in verse 42, the reason why we do this is that you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All who are native Israelites shall dwell in booths. So in verse 43, that your generations may know that I made the children of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So this is the reason why God had them construct a booth and also why we dwell in temporary dwellings during the feast. It's to remind us how Israel lived in tents after leaving Egypt. And there are many lessons to learn about living in temporary dwellings that we'll probably hear during the feast one of which is the need to be ready to follow God wherever he leads, which is important for us to this day. But here again, we will be following this command at the feast this year. In fact, we've already been allowed to make our reservations, and so we will be staying in temporary dwellings, so we will also be following this second command for feast keeping. Now, I want to center in on the last phrase in verse 40. Because it tells us of another command for feast keeping, and that is this. You shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. You shall rejoice during the feast. Now rejoice, the Hebrew word means to be filled with joy. So we see that an aspect of rejoicing is joy, which is a spiritual attribute, but also to be exceedingly glad. During the feast, God wants us to be happy during the feast, to have joy and to be exceedingly glad during the feast. And here we turn the corner and start talking about what's important to God while we keep the feast. This addresses the approach and attitude one takes toward the feast. 
Here's where the command gets personal, though, and talks about a heart issue inside each of us. Notice that rejoicing is what we each bring to the feast as an individual keeping the feast. The church has arranged the first two commands, the commanded items for feast keeping, and that is a place to have holy convocations and temporary dwellings. The third commanded item is up to us, and that is rejoicing. Really, anyone can physically follow the first two commands to keep the feast. In fact, you can follow these commands to the letter and still miss what's important to God for the feast. And that is rejoicing at the feast. And notice in verse 40, it is a command. You shall rejoice. Or as the Net Bible renders it, you must rejoice. But will we this year? Some may say, how can you rejoice unless you're at a beach site or a mountain site or wherever you personally prefer to go to the feast? Some may think, I can't rejoice because I can't go where I want to go. But notice God's command to rejoice is not tied to geography. There's nowhere here that says, unless you go to a particular place, you shall rejoice. It's just that you shall rejoice. This point is extremely important because I believe for too long, we've associated rejoicing with location. And I believe it is based on a flawed definition of rejoicing that many of us have. For many, rejoicing means having a good time in the modern sense. And so for a good time means different things for, to various age groups. A child may have visions of a Disney vacation for a good time. A good time for teens might be chilling with other teens for nine days. Hey, what's up? Oh, nothing. I'm just chilling, you know. For adults, a good time might look like an adult beverage commercial where everyone is good looking and laughing with a drink in their hands. That may be the image we have of rejoicing, which really is just having a good time. But is this what God meant by you shall rejoice? As we shall see shortly, Godly rejoicing can include some of these elements, but based on God's command, location has nothing to do with rejoicing. Understand, choosing the site we'll attend has become our expectation. But that's because we've been so blessed in our affluent society. But realize, too, that many of God's people through the ages haven't had the chance to transfer to go wherever they want to go, such as in ancient Israel and many of our international brethren. The less affluent aren't able to go wherever they would like to go. And, of course, there's the physically limited. Traveling for the feast is a wonderful blessing. I've done it myself. And it is and can enhance the feast. But it's not a right now, I know location matters from being a feast coordinator for less exotic sites, such as New Braunfels, Texas, and Cincinnati, Ohio. Compared to a beach, those are hard sells to many modern feast, feast goers, especially Cincinnati, 
When I would tell people that the feast was going to be in Cincinnati, they'd say, really? Why? So we even changed the name to Northern Kentucky because it was more accurate. It, the feast site was actually in Northern Kentucky, and it gave it a different connotation. And what saved us there was someone built a replica ark, Noah's Ark, nearby, which is another aspect that many associate with location, and that is local attractions. They can live with a subpar fee site if there's plenty in the area to do. In fact, one of the complaints about certain sites is there's nothing to do. Now, exotic sites and attractions aren't bad by themselves. There's nothing wrong with them by themselves. And it doesn't make someone wrong for wanting those things, but a person's ability to rejoice is not dependent on location. The point is that exotic sites and attractions are not part of God's commands for the feast. Theoretically, you could have the feast in an empty field with everyone living in tents if that's the place God chooses. And it would be following God's commands for the feast. In fact, picture what God had in mind for the feast from just these instructions here in Leviticus 23. And picture what it would be like. These are just some of the things that I thought of. That all families were to build and live in a booth made with branches, erected on a flat piece of ground, either dirt or grass. This booth was not watertight, so when it rained, everything got wet. And this was the Middle East, so the weather could be uncomfortable. And because entire tribes were gathered together to keep the feast, the booths were probably close to each other. So talk about very little privacy, if any. And add to all of that the produce that you had to bring and some livestock that you had. And the odors were probably, shall we say, toward the end of the feast, earthy. This was like primitive camping, but without camping gear from REI. And no wonder they had to be told to rejoice. Now let me ask you this, though, related to that. What if the church offered one feast site like that? Very primitive setting. Maybe not as primitive as this description, but maybe more like what we have at summer camp. I really wonder how many people would actually come especially if we kept all the other sites as we do now. This, I believe, is an interesting question because I've heard a number of members say that they actually get more out of summer camp than they do the feast. They actually prefer camp, and some of the reasons are because everyone is roughing it all together. And... They like that there are no distractions and everyone is focused and sharing all meals together. And believe me, for anyone who's gone to camp, that is a wonderful experience. And those are some very, very wonderful blessings about camp. But I would argue that is more the experience God had in mind for the feast. And over the years, we've gotten further away from that type of feast. In fact, one of the most beloved feast sites ever in the Church of God 
was much like that for thousands of people for decades, and that was Big Sandy, Texas. Now, if you've never been to Big Sandy, you know what it's like if you have been there. Big Sandy has nothing most modern feastgoers expect. Yes, there's a lot of sand. There's a reason why it's called Big Sandy, but there's really no beach unless you go around Lake Loma. There are really no attractions unless you count Lake Loma or the nearest town, Gladewater. It's hot, humid, and uncomfortable, and that's when it isn't raining. And thousands during those years stayed in tents among the ants in the piney woods. And they held services in either a massive tent or a large metal building with no air conditioning. But if you talk to those who attended Big Sandy for years from the 1950s through the 80s, many will say they loved it. Many will wax nostalgic about being able to just walk through the piney woods and be invited by whomever to come over to have some food. I really believe it's because it was closer to God's original intent for the feast. What we read here in Leviticus 23. But I believe our modern expectations for the feast are now light years away from this. And I don't know if we could ever go back to the point where this type of feast would be a very hard sell. And really, I wonder what God thinks of that. Let's explore further what God meant by you shall rejoice. What is godly rejoicing and how is it different from having a good time? This is important because godly rejoicing is the essence of a spiritual feast built on a combination of physical and spiritual elements. The first element is an important part of the last phrase here in verse 40. Notice, He says, you shall rejoice, but notice what else he adds here. You rejoice before the Lord your God. Too often we miss this important part of the command for the feast. We overlook it. We aren't to rejoice at the feast just for the sake of rejoicing. What makes the feast special and holy is God's presence. Because without God's presence, it will simply be a good time, like a vacation. Unfortunately, this can happen even while following God's instructions, and I believe for many it has. Let's notice another passage related to feastkeeping in Deuteronomy 14. Deuteronomy 14, a well-known passage of Scripture. And let's start in verse 22. Deuteronomy 14, beginning in verse 22. And we'll read through verse 26. Deuteronomy 14, verse 22. You shall truly tithe all the increase of your grain that the fruit, that the field produces year by year. Now what's interesting about this passage is the Feast of Tabernacles is not identified in this passage, but obviously it's talking about second tithe and its use of second tithe, which we do at the feast. So, You shall truly tithe, verse 22, all the increase of your grain that the field produces year by year. And you shall eat before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses to make his name abide. The tithe of your grain and your new wine and your oil, of the firstborn of your herds and your flocks, 
that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. But, and this is where it changes to a more modern sense, verse 24, if the journey is too long for you, so that you are not able to carry the tithe, or if the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name is too far from you, when the Lord your God has blessed you, then you shall exchange it for money. And take the money in your hand and go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. And you shall spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for oxen or sheep, for wine or similar drink, for whatever your heart desires, you shall eat there before the Lord your God and you shall rejoice, you and your household. Now, this is one of our favorite passages passages about keeping the feast, I'm sure, because this is all good news for us, right? What's not to like in this passage? There are a lot of instructions here, but how do we usually read this? Well, we pick out certain phrases, such as, you shall exchange the tithe for money, and you shall take the money in your hand, in your hand, and go to the place and spend that money for whatever your heart desires, for wine or similar drink, For whatever your heart desires, it repeats. And read this way, this passage can justify a worldly approach to the feast where the focus is on the physical. And so this can lead, and I believe it has led many to use the feast for their own pleasurable pursuits where it's more about what they get out of the experience. I'm pretty sure that approach is not what God meant by this passage. Yes, he commands us to rejoice here, and it is a blessing to have an abundance during the feast, to be enjoyed as a reward for faithfully following him for the previous year. But the critical point is rejoicing cannot be separated from God. God is there at the feast. And notice how many times in this section refers to the Lord your God. Six times in five verses, that phrase is used. So instead of a sense of entitlement, we should approach the feast being grateful for God's blessings. Because without God, there would be no such feast. Notice, let's reread some of these phrases And notice what he emphasizes about himself related to the feast. Phrases such as, you shall eat before the Lord your God. That you may learn to fear the Lord your God always. And the place where the Lord your God chooses to put his name, when the Lord your God has blessed you, go to the place which the Lord your God chooses. And you shall eat there before the Lord your God. I think God wants to emphasize the connection to Him during the feast. And the connection to God and produce was obvious in an agrarian society, such as the people who were keeping the feast then. They knew the success of their harvest was dependent on God's favor. They could not get away from the connection to God. But we tend to lose that connection in our cash society. But it's to our detriment. Where we believe we earned the money for the feast. And even though we spend that money for whatever your heart desires is a command, 
the context of that you may learn to fear the Lord your God always is a part of it. So, while we enjoy the good stuff as God intended, the physically good stuff, we understand why we are enjoying it. We understand who we are. We are God's people. And what we have is all because of God. The reason we're keeping the feast is because of Him. Now, related to this passage, let's notice a couple more commands about rejoicing by going a few pages forward to Deuteronomy 16. Deuteronomy 16, and we'll read, begin reading in verse 13. Deuteronomy 16, beginning in verse 13, where it says, You shall observe the Feast of Tabernacles seven days when you have gathered from your threshing floor and from your winepress. And you shall rejoice in your feast, but not only you, but you and your son and your daughter, so your immediate family, but not only them, your male servant and your female servant and the Levite, the stranger and the fatherless and the widow who are within your gates. God wanted everyone to enjoy and be able to rejoice at the feast. But we see here that food is a big part of that. So food and fellowship are the elements that make it the feast. It's built into the name, the Feast of Tabernacles. And something special happens when people break bread together, especially at the feast. Sharing a meal can be a spiritual experience where bonding takes place. And sharing meals is an opportunity to make new friends at the feast. Instead of eating only by yourself or going off by yourself and your friends or your family alone, it's an opportunity to make new friends while breaking bread. Perhaps you have had lifelong relationships begin during a Feast of Tabernacles meal. But notice the important aspect in verse 14 is inclusiveness. God is all about relationships. And I believe He designed sharing meals to enhance the relationships during the feast. Where no one is left out, which amplifies the joyful experience for all. All ages, celebrating the physical and spiritual blessings together as God intends. So, as long as we have what God commands for the feast, which we will, which is a place to have holy convocations for worship and learning, while living in temporary dwellings and enjoying the abundance of food and fellowship, all within the presence of God, this is the essence of rejoicing at the feast, regardless of location, as we read in verse 15. Seven days you shall keep a sacred feast to the Lord your God in the place which the Lord chooses. Because the Lord your God will bless you in all your produce and in all the work of your hands, so that you surely rejoice. Putting all of these elements together, how can we help but rejoice as God intended? Now, shifting gears, Mr. Weston wrote of another opportunity in his member letter of May 11th, Quote, many members in all countries are going to need financial assistance to attend the feast this year, far more than any of us have ever seen. This gives us a wonderful opportunity to practice true Christianity by showing outgoing concern for those who have lost jobs and businesses. 
Families who have contributed for years and even decades to help others attend the feast are now in need of help themselves through absolutely no fault of their own. With this challenge ahead of us, created by this pandemic, we have a wonderful opportunity to demonstrate who we really are as the living church of God. Those who have income can experience a special blessing this year that will go far beyond seeing some foreign land by sharing their abundance with these individuals and families. And so, because we're staying local this year, we won't have the travel expenses that we sometimes have. This year, some will have more money to help others to truly rejoice in a way they perhaps never have. Therefore, and thereby fulfilling God's instructions, we read about leaving no one out. Mr. Weston had one other suggestion in his member letter that can help us to rejoice at the feast, and that is this, quote, In addition to the extra financial assistance we can give, this is a year where we need everyone to pitch in and serve these smaller sites. Every location will need workers of all sorts, such as piano players, musicians for high-quality special music, ushers and parking crew, perhaps even someone to organize a picnic or family event. For those with abilities and talents, the feast has always been a wonderful place to serve. And there is always a great need for the logistical areas Mr. Weston lists here. But there's much more to service than these more formal ways that he lists. In fact, I'd suggest replacing the word service in the context of the feast with the word give to help us to learn to give in a variety of ways. Service has a more formal, structured tone to it. Giving, anyone can do. All it takes is an outwardly focused mindset that starts with an open heart. Mr. Weston Further writes, this is a wonderful opportunity to practice sacrifice and caring for one another, something that I am confident members of the Living Church of God will do and will be richly rewarded for doing so. And I say amen. It will help us all to rejoice at the feast. I remember one year, I vividly remember the year I decided to not worry about enjoying the feast for myself, but rather try to focus on giving others a better feast. I was in my early 20s at the time. I was signing up for ushering, and I was put over a section for disabled people. And I remember helping one older couple in particular, where the wife was in a wheelchair, and the husband had Parkinson's disease and could only shuffle and could barely talk. During the lunch break on one of the high days, I believe it was the first high day, instead of going out to eat with my friends, I stayed at the hall with this couple to have a bag lunch with them. And we were having a good time until the wife asked me to take her husband to the bathroom. Now, those who are caretakers probably do this all the time. And I admire you for doing this. But I had never had to do anything like that before, especially for someone not in my family. And I had to do it all. It was humbling. But... It was a necessary service. It was one way that I could give to this wonderful couple during this feast. One small way. They probably, I'm sure, thought it was nothing. 
But for me, it was significant. Because that was part of a feast over 40, 34 years ago that still stands out as one of the most meaningful and rewarding of the 45 I've kept. And it was because of things like that. That any of us can do for each other to help give each other a more rejoicing feast. Related to giving at the feast, I've always found it interesting that God calls a fast through the Day of Atonement before the feast. Have you ever wondered why? Have you ever wondered why God set the Day of Atonement just a few days before the feast? Basically, before we travel to the feast, He has a fast. Now, if most of us were going to call a huge celebration, we wouldn't probably have a fast right before. But God did. For a reason. For many reasons, I'm sure. And I believe one reason is to prepare us to have an outwardly focused feast. Why do I say that? Well, because look at what God says fasting is for in one of the sections about fasting in general in Isaiah 58. So if you'll turn there now to Isaiah 58, and we'll start in verse 6. Isaiah 58, in verse 6. God tells us what He wants a fast to do. The purpose for a godly fast. Isaiah 58 and verse 6. says, Is this not the fast that I have chosen, God says, to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, and to let the oppressed go free that you break every yoke? And yes, fasting in general should unshackle us from the heavy burdens of sin. Because fasting often includes repentance. And so, before we go to the feast, this is a worthy thing to do. And God built it into the Holy Day system. That we would have to fast before going to the feast. And maybe part of it was for this reason. So that we would have a chance to repent of any sin that we have. But notice that after we've taken the time to clean up our own backyard, we're ready to help others, as it goes on to say in verse 7. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, and that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out, and when you see the naked that you cover him, and not hide yourself from your own flesh, from your own family, from your brethren perhaps? I believe here, within the instructions for fasting, one primary purpose for fasting is to become less self-centered. Because fasting humbles us. And I believe in this way, it can prepare our hearts to give at the feast. To be more outwardly focused. Looking for opportunities to help others. Helping them, perhaps with a Heavy physical load. Maybe they've got a lot of books and things and maybe it's a, someone with a lot of children or whatever. Maybe you help them that, that, doing that. Or just simply opening a door. Or talking to someone who is alone. Or taking someone out to lunch. Or maybe just simply smiling. And if we do those things, notice what God says next is the result of a proper fast. We benefit from this. Verse 8. 
Then your light shall break forth like the morning, and your healing shall spring forth speedily. And your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. What if everyone got this kind of fast during the Day of Atonement and then came to the feast this way, where we are shining light of righteousness? And our connection to God is strong as a group. A proper fast on the Day of Atonement can't help but enhance our feast. And I think it's very interesting that God positioned and forces us to have a fast before the feast. I believe the two holy days can go hand in hand to prepare our hearts to give at the feast. Finally, because of the unique aspects of this particular feast this year, We all have an opportunity for a truly special experience, one that most of us, at least here in the U.S., have not had before, but I'm really looking forward to. It may be more common for many of our international brethren, and I think that's a very good thing. But this year, local brethren from a particular area are going to keep the feast together. I've always wondered what this would be like. In this way, this is like a Jerusalem-like pilgrimage feast. When ancient Israel would attend the feast with their family and tribe, all together going to the same place. Which is similar to Ezra's time when God's people made booths and dwelt in various places around Jerusalem. Or even in Christ's time, when John records Jesus attending the feast in Jerusalem where his family was. In these situations... People who were very familiar with one another kept the feast together. It's something I've always desired as a pastor. To share the highlight of the year with my closest brethren. It's like spending the feast with my extended family. And this year provides that opportunity. This year we get to do it which I think makes it even more special. So, I pray we embrace it. And we throw our hearts into it. And we make the most of it and truly rejoice in the place God has chosen. Because the 2020 Feast of Tabernacles is shaping up to being a feast like no other.